Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. In June of 1955, Sir Winston Churchill, who was near the end of his life, was asked to give a commencement address to his alma mater, the Harrow School for Boys. At this time, he was old, infirm, and he had to be helped to make it to the podium. Then he held on to the podium for what seemed to be an endless amount of time. He stood with his head bowed, but finally looked up. And with that familiar voice that had called Britain back from the brink of destruction, sounded publicly for the last time in history. He gave his speech. It went like this, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. With that, Churchill turned and went back to his seat. I read somewhere that there was silence, and then, as if one person, the whole audience rose and applauded him. During the darkest days of World War II, when country after country was being swallowed by Nazis, while the German planes were bombing English cities into piles of rubble, when the threat of invasion seemed imminent, when the hardiest of souls were giving up hope, Churchill never lost hope and never gave up. His life and his words were congruent. Again and again throughout his po political career, Churchill had to make unpopular decisions. He had known setbacks. Three times he was removed from office, voted out, and yet three times he came back when asked to lead his country. He was a man who never gave up. Well, I flew to and from Maine three weeks ago. I read a book that Betty Fike had given to Mark. It was a book I desperately needed to read, and oh, there we go. Angela Duckworth's Grit. The subtitle says, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. What is grit? Grit. Is it the sand that's going to be in our box in VBS? Grit is the passion and perseverance for long-term goals. One way to think about grit is to consider what grit is not. Grit is not talent. Grit is not luck. And grit is not how intensely for the moment you want something. Instead, 
grit is about having what some researchers call an ultimate concern, a goal that overrides all others, a goal that you care about so much that it organizes everything you do and it gives meaning to everything you do. Grit is holding steadfast to that goal. Even when you fall down, even when you screw up, even when you're fought and even when you're threatened, even when progress is slow or halting or for the moment stopped. Talent and luck do matter to success, but talent and luck are nothing compared to grit to ensure that, yes, you will reach that goal. An essential component of having grit is having a goal that is worthy, a goal that is a treasure that's worth selling everything for, a goal that really matters, a goal worth dying for. The Apostle Paul is an example of grit. Acts 14 describes what Paul and Barnabas did in Lystra. They encountered a man crippled from birth, and this man had never walked in his entire lifetime. The man was listening intently as Paul preached, and he saw, Paul saw in this man that there was faith there and that he could be healed. So Paul called out, stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they began to shout, the gods have come down to us in human form. And they called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. The priest of Zeus brought out bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. But Paul and Barnabas did not want the people to worship them. They wanted the people to worship the true God. They exclaimed that we're only men. We're bringing you good news. And the good news is this. God loves you. God has been kind to you. He sends you the rain, he makes your crops grow, and he fills your hearts with joy. God loves you, they told the people. And have you ever thought about that? When it rains, it's a sign that God loves you. And when you have plenty of food to eat, it's a sign that God loves you. He loves you, they told the people but still the people wanted to worship them. And somehow it ended up messy because Paul and Barnabas had enemies that they had already met in their journeys to other towns. These were Jewish leaders who wanted to stop Paul from telling the people about Jesus. They convinced the crowd that Paul and Barnabas were evil that they had done this miracle with Satan's power. They were not good. And so the people that just a few moments before were trying to worship them, 
now joined those Jewish leaders in picking up stones. And we began throwing them at Paul. The stones were large. One hit him in the head and knocked him out. And then they kept throwing the stones until there was this huge heap of stones on top of Paul. And then they left him, thinking he was dead. But Paul wasn't dead. Okay, move forward one more. They, they thought, thought he was dead. Move on, one more. There we go. And when the crowd all went home, Paul's friends came back, and they began to remove those stones. They moved them all away, and then they washed the dirt and the blood off his bruised body. And they helped him get up, and he walked with them back to town. And this is what I just find so amazing in this story. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. There they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Now, if you had been stoned and left for dead, don't you think you would want to go for some rehab? Don't you think you would need some therapy that would help you with your PTSD if you'd been stoned and left for dead? Don't you think you at least would like to go home and lick your wounds and make sure things got healed up so you wouldn't be preaching with a black and blue face? Paul had grit. He's just faced death and walked away from it, and he goes right to the next town and starts again, doing exactly the same thing that had put his life in peril before. And Paul just kept right on preaching. And eventually it says they returned to Lystra. Now, if I knew somebody in Squim wanted to kill me, I think I'd get my groceries in Port Townsend. If I knew somebody here wanted me dead, I don't think I'd show up much. But Paul had grit. He knew the goal that God had put before him. And he had his eyes on that goal. It was his treasure to be able to do what God had asked him to do. He didn't let even threat and physical violence keep him from striving to meet his goal. That's grit. Where would the church be if Paul hadn't been gritty? Where would we be? Or consider God himself. Consider how slow the Father is to anger, how faithful he is to try and try again to catch our attention and change our stubborn hearts. Think about how far the Father was willing to extend himself and how much he was willing to give to see the plan of salvation succeed. God had a goal, and that goal was you, was the salvation of mankind. In Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, there is a scene that exemplifies the grit of Jesus. 
Jesus' back has been whipped with a scourge and his flesh is, has been torn from those little barbs every time they lashed him. His face and his body have been beaten beyond recognition. They place the heavy cross on his back and those who know about crucifixion say that piece of timber probably weighed 90 pounds and he's already been beaten. He climbs up the Via Dolorosa, and as he climbs, he stumbles, and he falls under the weight of the cross. His arms are tied to the cross with ropes, so he cannot catch himself. So he falls face first into the gravel. Considering his physical condition, it's amazing he didn't just pass out right there his body unable to bear any more pain. But amazingly, he struggles to his knees and then to his feet. And he begins to slowly go up the hill again. He wills himself to complete the goal, the mission that the Father had given him. That's grit. That's grit. Where would we be if Jesus had not been a gritty God with an incredible goal, the goal to save us? When we choose to keep going, when we choose a worthy goal and we choose to never give up, we are choosing to be like Jesus. And we are choosing to be like our Father who loves us to the end. Jesus did hard things because his goal required hard things. Jesus also did hard things because he depended on the Father who gave him strength. Well, I've always considered myself to be a gritty person. I don't give up very easy. And some of you may love that and some of you may hate it. I just don't give up. When I was 16, I was a junior at Auburn Academy, and Miss Watkins, the history teacher, decided to offer an advanced US history course to prepare the students to take a seed test. If you could pass the test, you would receive college credit for the work you did in high school. I was an ambitious student, a good reader, and ready for a challenge. In other words, I was a nerd. So I signed up for this hard history class along with five other students. The textbook was the biggest one I had seen to date that point in my life. I have seen bigger ones since then. But it was about this thick and huge with small print. It was challenging reading for a 16-year-old. But I read every assignment. And she put outside reading even on top of that. This was her chance to be a college teacher, and she was really laying it on. My classmates, however, decided this was too much. One by one, they dropped out. And as the second semester began, there were just two of us left. And then the teacher did something that in my book was unforgivable. She decided it wasn't worth her time. 
to teach just two kids. And so she said to us, just join the other history class. You probably couldn't pass that test anyway. Well, I was already four and a half months into reading that huge textbook, and I had already spent way too many of my times, so it should have been free time, studying history. And so her words were fighting words to this gritty soul. I petitioned to take the class by independent study, and now I had a free period every day that I would just read the rest of that textbook by myself. Every single page of it. They say that the sweetest revenge is success, and I was gonna teach this flake-out teacher a lesson about giving up on me. Passing the SIEB test became my goal for my junior year. The test was pass-fail with a total score possible of five. You needed a three or above to pass. It contained two essays and 100 multiple choice questions. So I made a list of all the things they might make me write essays about and pre-wrote the essays gathered the facts and pre-wrote them all. I also made this copious list of all the things, the people, places, and wars, and all the things that shaped American history. And when I went to take the test, I scanned what the essays were going to be about, and they were both on topics I had pre-written. I thank God. He had told me what to study. And then I confidently wrote the essays, and I passed with a 4.5. Since that time, when I'm tempted to give up, I remember the day I opened that envelope. I had proven to myself that by God's grace, I could do hard things. And by God's grace, you can do hard things too. Even if you're by yourself, even if you don't have a teacher or a mentor or even a smart friend, I learned that God himself would help me one step at a time. Well, since that time, I've done things far, far harder than pass that test. I, I have stayed loyally employed by the Adventist Church through indescribable twists and turns that my gender and the way the church approaches my gender has provided me. My bosses intermittently either believed and supported me or tried to somehow cut me out and cut me back. And it wasn't all one at the beginning and one at the end. It has just been completely random, just depending on who is my boss. I've been loved and I've been hated. I've stayed married to my first and only husband through the pressures of team ministry. And let me tell you, there have been a lot of them. And I've raised teenagers and survived breast cancer. You also have already done hard things, haven't you? You know what you've done already in your life. You know the places that demanded grit 
and the grit that God gave you to get through those times. You remember the times that you wanted to give up, and you remember all that stuff that you have lived through. God was there. And when we need grit, God gives grace. When we have to do something hard, that's when God shows up the closest and the most clearly. So write a little note to yourself. Tell yourself, by God's grace, I can do hard things. By God's grace, I can do hard things. Philippians 4.13 promises us, and this promise has been used so many times that it's almost cliche, except maybe it's true. And if it's true, this is an amazing promise. So don't assume it's cliche. Assume that God is going to back up this promise with his own grace and spirit and strength. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. What part of everything are we not understanding? Oh, you might say, ah, my situation is an exception. My situation is too hard for me. I'm a wimp. But is it too hard for God, who will give you strength and wisdom to face it? I don't think so. So let's take another look at our scripture of the morning. Galatians 6, 9 encourages us, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, it's clear from the Bible that God expects all of his people to do good. How are you doing with that? Are you doing good with this one and only life that God has given you? Is the one goal in your life to honor God and to bless other people? Are you? Is that what you're living for? Is that the treasure that you'll sell out every other thing for or not? And don't forget when Paul is writing this verse, it's in a letter to the churches in Galatia. He was writing to people sitting in the pew, just like you. He wasn't writing to pastors or conference presidents. He was writing to the people sitting in the church who would hear this letter read and he's saying, never stop doing good with your life. Don't quit. Never give up. Let us, who is the us? It's every single one of us, everyone. Every Christ follower is expected to do good. In fact, in Ephesians 2 verse 10, it says, we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good. Why did he create you? According to this verse, to do good, to do good works, 
which God prepared in advance for them to do. So this would indicate that not only did he pre-wire you up to do specific things with your life, but then he put you right into the community and right into the church and right into the family where those gifts and skills and passions are needed. He puts you here for a purpose. And if you have never read Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, you have like 300 pages to try to drive this idea home that you are here because God put you here. And I'm glad you're here. He has a plan for you, and that plan is for you to bless me, and his plan for me is for me to bless you. We're here together in this. And when we do good, we are simply following the example of Christ. Paul tells us in Philippians 2.5 that we need to have the same attitude of Jesus. And how did Jesus spend his days? Doing good. Um, Acts 10.38 says, And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. He went around doing good. So wouldn't that be nice if that's how you were described? That you went around doing good? For most of my young adult years, I had a poem on my refrigerator or tacked to the to the corkboard behind my desk. And it said this, I read in a book about a man called Christ who went around doing good. It's quite disconcerting to me that I am so easily satisfied with simply going about. Do you go about doing good or do you just go about? Or could it be that as you go about, your eyes and your ears could be open and you could just be waiting for opportunities wherever you are to do good, to be a blessing somehow to whoever God puts in your pathway? It's a challenge, but I believe it's a biblical challenge. So what is the good that we seek to do it is caring for the physical, mental, and spiritual well-being of other people. And the Bible tells us to do good continually. Not just to have, you know, once a month we do lay activities and we do outreach. But it says all day, every day, you should be looking for opportunity to do good. Jesus did this. And he never grew weary of being what the Father had asked him to do, loving us and loving humankind. Even as he was dying, we find John instructing, Jesus instructing John to look out after his older mother, to take care of her earthly needs. He wasn't focused on himself. And just a few hours earlier, before he went to Gethsemane, he was troubled. He knew what was coming, and yet he is giving his attention to his disciples. And he's saying, don't be anxious. Do not let your heart be troubled. 
trust in God, trust in me. And as he hung on the cross, he had time and energy through having to gasp for breath, so every word must have been extremely difficult to be able to speak to that thief hanging beside him and promise him that his faith would be rewarded with eternal life. Jesus never stopped doing good. To the day he died, he never stopped. And so I don't think doing good has an expiration date. And it says when you're 65, you're done doing good. I think we can all do it, no matter how old we are. To whatever extent our energy and our mind, our, our mental capacity, and our physical capacity will allow us, we can do this. So let's just think about what Jesus did. He healed the disabled, the lame, the deaf, the blind. He hugged lepers and prostitutes and tax collectors. He made time for lonely people, widows, orphans, and children. He took the side of the poor, the little guy and the underdog against the rich and powerful. He fed the hungry. He befriended the lonely. He went out of his way. I love the story of the widow of Nain, where he, Jesus sees that funeral procession off in the distance, and he says, I can't let this keep going. I've got to do something. Nobody asked him to come and raise that young man and give him back to his mother. But Jesus went out of his way just to relieve suffering. Every time we do good, we are Christians who are following in the footprints of our master. But Galatians 6, 9 is a warning. It says that we can grow weary of doing good. Have any of you ever been weary of doing good? Tired of potluck, maybe? Your feet hurt at the end of that Sabbath afternoon? Oh, man, oh, yeah. Maybe you're tired of working with kids. I did that once. I'm done now. Maybe you're tired of doing community services because the people just are a little rough around the edges. But Paul warns us that we will grow weary in doing good unless we keep our eyes on the goal. We can have grit in doing good if we keep our eyes on Jesus. In this verse, the phrase grow weary can be translated different ways. It could be get tired or it could be get discouraged. And I think probably discouragement takes more of us out than sheer exhaustion. Although sheer exhaustion does sometimes do it too. What it means is don't lose your motivation. And I want to say, if you're tired, go ahead and rest. But as soon as you're rested up, get back in the game. It has often been said that although we get weary in the Lord's work, we must never be weary of the Lord's work because we're working for him. When we cease to be joyful servants, we begrudge the work he gives us to do. I can't believe I have to do this. 
Why doesn't somebody else do this? We get grumpy. Anybody here ever been grumpy about doing the Lord's work? Ah, what a crumb team. Instead of helping people, we end up hurting them. If we do good and we have not been filled with the spirit of grace. We've got to be bathed in grace or our grit will get gritty in a, in a not so wonderful way. Sometimes Christians are tempted to quit doing good because it seems that what they're doing does no good. Have you ever heard somebody say, I don't know why I do this. It doesn't do any good anyway. Our enemy loves to throw that back in our face and just say, huh, you're not doing it. It's not making any difference. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Half-heartedly or fully? Fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Sometimes I think we want to measure our own effectiveness, and God does not want us to do that. He just wants us to keep doing good and not be worried about whether it's making any difference or not, if it's being effective or not. We're tempted to feel our work is in vain when, when we're trying to help people, it never is enough. No matter how hard you work, there's some way that they can point out where you didn't get it right. And I beg God that I will never be the one who make, makes my Christian brothers and sisters weary of good works by picking. I just pray it will never be. But I also beg God to never allow other people to get in between me and God and keeping me from doing the work he has asked me to do. So I included a quotation in the Today's Service page. One website attributed this to Mother Teresa. I never saw anyone else's name on it. I don't know for sure if this is Mother Teresa or not, but if you can imagine that tiny, humble, weasened-up saint with her soft-spoken voice speaking these words, maybe that makes it ring all the more true. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Is that true or what? Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win false friends and true enemies. Be successful anyway. If you are honest and frank, you will be vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. When you, what you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. This is a good one. Be happy anyway. The biggest people with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest people with the smallest pride. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs but follow top dogs. Fight for some underdogs anyway. 
Give the world the best you have, and it will never be enough. Give the world the best you have anyway. Why? Because in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It never was between you and them anyway. Don't let a human being keep you from completing and fulfilling God's purpose for your life, which is to do good works, which is to serve wholeheartedly. Colossians 3, verse 23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. So who's your boss? The real boss. Remember that. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 tells us to encourage one another and build each other up. And more specifically, Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, says we come to church to spur each other on to what? Toward love and good deeds. The word spur means literally a cattle prod. Okay? So it's like this, this image is we come to church to, to get everybody else willing to move and to do what God is asking them to do, toward love and to good deeds. Jamie Dimon is the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. He is the one who speaks to the employees and creates the culture. He created a culture of grit. And he knows a quotation by Teddy Roosevelt by memory that every time he speaks to his employees, he says this. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or what the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error or shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself for a worthy cause. There we go again, having a goal that's worth living for, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails by daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. That sounds to me like side chair critics and couch potato quarterbacks are not what God has in mind. We've got to be in the arena. This is how Jamie translates Roosevelt for his teams. It's written in their employee's manual. Have a fierce resolve in everything you do. Demonstrate determination, resiliency, and tenacity. And this is what I really liked. Do not let temporary setbacks become permanent excuses. Wow, that's grit. And finally, use mistakes and problems as opportunities to get better not reasons to quit. 
Well, I pray for our church culture that we will be gritty people, not abrasive people, but perseverant people. Gritty can mean either. Let's be the perseverant kind of gritty. A grittiness that is contagious and that each of us will be continually, increasingly focused on doing good to all for God's glory. And that when we get together, we will be spurring each other on to find ways to fulfill our ultimate purpose. In my mind, that's why we're part of the church. That's why we come together. What should we do if we find ourselves growing weary? The Bible has some very specific strategies. First of all, it says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Basically says, if it's getting in the way of you serving God, quit. And many of us have lots of things. Mark and I were talking about the fact that sometimes we really love to be in the Word, and other times we don't. So we're analyzing each other, and we're sitting there talking. This was like yesterday. And he says, you know, you loved the Word more when you didn't read the news. Quit reading the news. I'm thinking, you're right. Whatever seems to take your attention off of Jesus, throw it away. Throw off anything that hinders. And then it says, let us run with perseverance the race that is set out for us. God doesn't call you to live someone else's life. He doesn't call you to be Mother Teresa. He calls you to do good deeds in Squim or with your family, the life he's given you. And then it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, that idea of him getting up under the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse um, 3, it says, And consider him who endured sinners, from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So what this says to me is, Colette, have they treated you like they treated Jesus? Not really. Stop whining then. Stop whining. Consider him, what he was willing to do. After 40 years of faithful service to the Lord as a missionary in Africa, Henry Morrison and his wife were returning to New York. As the ship neared the dock, Henry said to his wife, oh, Wow, look at the crowd. They haven't forgotten us. However, unknown to Henry, the ship also carried President Teddy Roosevelt, returning from a big game hunting trip in Africa. Roosevelt stepped from the boat with great fanfare as the people were cheering and flags were waving, bands were playing, and the reporters were waiting for comment. And Henry and his wife slowly walked down the gangplank, unnoticed, and hailed a cab. The cab took them to a one-bedroom small apartment that was provided by the mission board. Over the next three weeks, few weeks, Henry tried but he could not put that scene behind him. 
He was sinking deeper and deeper into depression when one evening he said to his wife, this is wrong. A man comes back from a hunting trip and everybody throws a party. We gave our lives in faithful service to God for all these many years and nobody even said thank you. His wife cautioned him that he should not feel that way. Henry replied, I know, but I just can't help it. It just isn't right. His wife then said, Henry, you know God doesn't mind if we talk to him about these kind of things. You need to tell this to the Lord and get this settled. You're going to be useless until you do so. Henry Morrison then went into the bedroom and he got down on his knees and began pouring out his heart to the Lord. Lord, you know our situation and you know what's troubling me. We gladly served you faithfully and we didn't complain. But now, God, I just can't get this scene out of my mind. After about 10 minutes of fervent prayer, Henry returned to the living room with a peaceful look on his face. His wife says, it looks like you resolved the matter. What happened? Henry replied, the Lord settled it for me. I told him how bitter I was that the president received this tremendous homecoming, but no one even met us when we returned home. When I finished, it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, but Henry, you're not home yet. We are promised a great harvest at the proper time, and that proper time might not be now. God gently tells us he's in control of the results, and he will bring results when it will be the greatest blessing to everyone involved. So let's trust him. Instead of giving up when there seems to be no results, take the long view that long view that gives us a reward in heaven that will never tarnish, spoil, or fade. So stay faithful, stay focused, stay gritty. Don't give up. Don't give in. Leave the results to God and serve him with your whole heart.